All right. Hello, everyone. So good to see you. Those of you who are here in the room, those of you who are online, and happy opening day to the Major League Baseball season. For the, uh, there's a few of us here that have spent the last three days watching baseball. We waited four and a half months, and now it is here. Uh, but now we're gathered in this place, in this time, together as the people of God, and so excited to start tonight a brand new series. We spent the last 10 weeks uh, in the book of James, and then here on Sunday nights for New Life Downtown, we're going to be doing a new series entitled Kingdom People, and this series is going to go for three weeks, and we're going to look at really three basic or fundamental questions to our faith. We're going to be asking the question tonight, who is Jesus? Starting off and talking about really that found, the foundation, the cornerstone of all that we think and believe about life, talking about the person of Jesus. And then next week, Pastor Glenn will be back from his vacation, and he's going to be sharing on what is salvation, and then the following week, answering the question, why church? And then after that, we're going to actually kick off our fall series through the book of Revelation. So we'll be from August, I think, 16th all the way through November uh, going through the book of Revelation. Uh, but let's start with a word of prayer tonight. Father, we come before you tonight by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus. And we come together to sing, to worship, and to learn about who Jesus is. And so Jesus, tonight we look full in your wondrous face. And would you continue to reveal yourself to us through the word, by your spirit, and at your table. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. I was a sophomore in high school in 1995. Yes, that means I am 41, going on 42. I think my wife keeps changing. Like the, the, I, my birthday's at the end of the year, but when the calendar turns over, my wife starts talking about how old I'll be the next calendar year, even though I haven't turned that age yet, so I get really confused at how old I am. I'm 41, going on 42. But when I was a sophomore in high school in 95, I had this series of events uh, in which my life became unraveled. Uh, it began with the news uh, that my cousin, who is just a couple months older than I am, had uh, received a terminal cancer diagnosis. It continued just a few weeks after that with my first girlfriend breaking up with me. And then it really sort of escalated a few weeks after that when uh, my dad moved out, my parents' separation led to their impending divorce. And here I am as a 16-year-old sophomore in high school, and, and the things that I was able to sort of like keep off to the side, things like death, and the things that I was able to sort of count on, some things in my household, all of a sudden became completely frayed. And I found myself in this place of just being lost, of being confused, of being afraid, of not really knowing what life was going to hold the next day. It seemed like everything was sort of coming apart at the seams. 
And for some reason, one day I walked up the street about maybe 10 houses down the street to uh, the guy who was my ex-girlfriend's dad uh, and the manager of the department I worked in at the grocery store. And I walked up to Ken's house feeling all of these emotions. And I sat down at Ken's kitchen table and Ken goes to his counter and he pulls out a Bible. And he opens the Bible and it begins to talk to me about Jesus. Of course, I had heard about Jesus before. Like I grew up in a small farming community in Iowa. Of course, I'd heard about Jesus. I knew some of the stories about Jesus, but there was something about this conversation that was different. There's something about this conversation that gripped me. There's something about the way that he was talking about Jesus as not this sort of person who told these stories that I learned at some point along the way, but he began talking about Jesus as the one who is living and active, as the one who is inviting me into relationship, as the one who wants to enter into my life and into this mess that was around me, talking to me about Jesus as if he was alive and real. And I remember this moment realizing that something was different. That day for me, March 28th, 1995, marked a new beginning. I walked home that day singing one of the only Christian songs I knew, Amazing Grace. I only knew the first, first stanza of the song, having prayed a prayer and encountered the person of Jesus. And from that day on, my life has been turned upside down. My life has been turned upside down in the most beautiful and wondrous ways I could have ever imagined. All because of this person, because of Jesus. And I spent the last 25 years now learning who this Jesus is, learning what it is that Jesus came to do, learning how it is that Jesus accomplished his mission here on earth, learning through God's grace very slowly, <laughs> very clumsily at times, at times in, in moments that are really uncomfortable, at times even painful in the midst of crisis, and yet always and ever realizing the grace and the love and the beauty and the power and the wonder of who this Jesus is. And so tonight, I want us to just take a look at a few key passages in the Gospel of Matthew to talk about who Jesus is. We don't have anywhere near enough time in a 25-minute sermon to unpack all the things that are true about Jesus. We don't even have enough time to look at all the significant texts in the Gospel of Matthew. But the hope is with any sermon that a sermon doesn't end a conversation but starts one that it starts a conversation first and foremost between you and God, and then secondly with whoever are the people in your life that God has brought around you. That this starts a conversation. So we're gonna to turn to the Gospel of Matthew and look at some of the things that Matthew says to be true about Jesus. And we're gonna begin in Matthew chapter one, verse one, where we find Matthew's gospel actually opens with Jesus's genealogy. It's like the ancient version of you know, ancestry.com, letting us know all of these things. It's kind of a strange way to open the New Testament. If we're thinking about, oh, how are we gonna open the New Testament? The last thing that any of us might do is start with you know, 20 plus verses about so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. It's 
seems a bit odd to start off a book this way, but in the ancient world, this is a way of sort of saying, this is who we're talking about. This is the identity of the person that this entire book is about. And so he begins this way, Matthew 1.1, a record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. I wanna start by just looking at the four words that we have there, the four names or titles that were given in this opening verse. Matthew is sort of putting his, his cards on the table immediately and saying, hey, this is who I'm gonna to talk to you about. First of all, Jesus is the Greek version of the name Yeshua. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. But he's talking about a person named Jesus whose very name means Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This God saves. This is who this person is. A few verses later in Matthew 1, verse 21, he'll say that his name is Jesus for he comes to save his people from their sins. That Jesus is the one who's come to rescue us from our captivity to sin and all of its consequences. That this is who Jesus is. He's the one who comes to save. And not only that, his name is it's Jesus and then Jesus Christ. Or if you're looking at another edition of the passage, it may say Jesus the Messiah Christ is the Greek term for the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach. It's actually not Jesus's last name. It's not Jesus Christ, but Jesus the Christ. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the one who is the long expected king of Israel. The one that the entire Old Testament is saying there's a person coming. There is a king coming. There's a Messiah coming coming. He's coming. Wait for him. He's going to come to and deliver his people, restore his kingdom, and rule over them. And Matthew is saying, Jesus is the God who comes to save, and he's the one who is going to deliver, restore, and rule. And not only that, but he is also the son of David, which means he's the rightful heir to this throne. He's the rightful one to take this place, to fill this mission, to step into this role. And he's the fulfillment of God's promises to David, that he promised King David, the most famous king in Israel's history, that one of his descendants would always be on the throne. And then we see that this is a God who keeps his promises, sending a descendant of David to come and restore the kingdom and establish the throne of David forever. We see a picture of a God who keeps his promises and not just his promise to David, but actually his promise to the entire world. He's not just the son of David, he's the son of Abraham, which is a way of saying that Jesus is fully Jewish. He's a member of the covenant community of Israel but he's also the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham was that in Abraham, in Abraham's offspring, and those who would come forth from Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That this is the first glimpse in one verse of who 
Jesus is. The God who comes to save. The one who comes to reign and to rule. The one who's the rightful heir to the throne. The one who's come that all the families of the earth might be blessed in him. The one who's come in fulfillment of all of God's promises. Luke adds to this in his genealogy that he's the son of Adam going all the way back saying he's not only fully God, he's also fully human. This is who he is. He's come for all of humanity. But Matthew in his gospel emphasizes one thing over and over and over again in very specific texts. He says this in the first time we see it. Jesus is 30 years old and he goes down to the Jordan River to get baptized by John the Baptist's cousin. And when he was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. And as he's coming up out of the water, we get this picture of heaven opening up. And the spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting upon him. And then a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. Or in other versions, the one in, who, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the very son of God the very son of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's fully human and fully and truly divine. What another creed says is that he is God of God and light from light. Matthew later on will call him Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus, we see that God himself has come near to do all these things. That God himself has come near to rescue his people from sin. That God himself has come near in order to reign. God himself has come into the world. That God has become human without ceasing to be God in order to reign and to rule and to rescue. So what Matthew wants us to know is that Jesus is the sovereign and saving son of of God. This is who we're talking about. That Jesus is the sovereign and saving love of God, son of God. He is the all-powerful one and the all-loving one, the one who's actually come to deliver us, to deliver his people. This is Jesus' identity. And then Matthew, at this point, switches and kind of talks about what is it that Jesus actually came to do then? What's Jesus' mission? What's Jesus' purpose? And he puts the, the mission of Jesus in Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says this, from that time, Jesus began to announce this, change your hearts and lives because here comes the kingdom of heaven. Other translations will say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. And then a few verses later, Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. And he announced this, he came to announce the good news of the kingdom. And while he's announcing the good news of the kingdom, he's healing every disease and sickness among the people. That this is what Jesus is doing. He's coming into the world to do these very things, to announce 
the good news or the gospel about the arrival of God's kingdom. See, in order to really understand what Jesus came to do, we have to understand two words, gospel and kingdom. Words that we throw around in church all of the time. We just sort of throw out gospel and we throw out kingdom as if they're words that we use at the supermarket. Like they're that sort of common. We just throw them around as if we understand. But these are not words that are part of our common vernacular. That these are words, especially if you're like me, you didn't grow up in church and hearing these words a lot, you're just sort of like, oh, okay. I guess everybody else knows what those words are and I'll go look it up on Webster afterwards and maybe I'll have a clue uh, about what is going on. But the word gospel and the word kingdom are essential to understanding what Jesus came to do. The word gospel has its origins both, both in the Old Testament and more primarily in the Greco-Roman world around the time of Jesus. In the Old Testament, we have things like the prophet Isaiah saying that how beautiful are the feet of those who declare the good news. There's something about the word gospel that at its core means good news. It's news, but something that has happened that should bring great joy. It's actually a good thing that has happened. In the Greco-Roman world from the time of Alexander the Great through Augustus and others, we see that this good news is primarily the good news about a monumental victory, about some political or military victory that somebody has won a great battle or somebody has become the new ruler or king. That this is what gospel means. It's a public proclamation of some great victory. And in the New Testament gospel, when it says that Jesus has come proclaiming the good news, Jesus is publicly proclaiming the victory of God, which is good news for God's kingdom. He's proclaiming the victory of God, that God has come near and that God has won. And this good news is good news about the victory of God's kingdom. So what's a kingdom? Like, what do we do with that word? We don't live in a kingdom, so we don't talk a lot about kings and queens. We have a strange relationship with kings and queens generally. Uh, we rebelled against one. Uh, and then we watch the other's weddings on TV like we can't get enough of them. We have this sort of like perplexed relationship with the royal families. But when we're talking about kingdom, in order for, for something to be a kingdom, it has to have four things. There needs to be a ruler. There needs to be some sort of king or queen. There needs to be people. It's not much of a kingdom if there aren't any citizens as a part of it. Uh, it's a very small uh, kingdom if, at, at best at that point. And then there needs to be within that kingdom some aspect of land, some place. There must be a place for that king or that queen and their citizens to live. So there's a ruler and there's people and there's a place. And then there's some agreed upon way of life. There is a rule of law, if you will. There's some ethic. There's some way that says, okay, if you're going to be in this place and live as my people, then this is what life looks like in this land. And the same is true for God's kingdom. That God's kingdom is really about God's people living in God's place under God's power, under his authority, and in his presence. It's about God's people living in God's place, under God's power, 
and in his presence. And Jesus is saying that he's come to proclaim the victory of God's kingdom. So we can say it this way, that through Jesus, God is fulfilling all of his promises. Through Jesus, God is defeating his enemies. Through Jesus, God was rescuing his people. And through Jesus, God is restoring his kingdom on earth. Through Jesus, God is bringing his people into his place, inviting them to live under his power and in his presence. That this is the invitation of Jesus' life is to come and be a part of God's kingdom, to be one of God's people, to live in his place, under his power, and in his presence. This is what Jesus came to do. But how does he do that? How does he actually make that possible? How is it that Jesus comes to defeat enemies and to rescue people and to restore a kingdom? How is it that that is going to happen? How is it that Jesus is gonna fulfill that mandate or that mission on his life? And this is where things take an unexpected turn. In a famous passage later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is together with his disciples. And he asks them the question that really Matthew talks about at the beginning of his Gospel. He says, hey, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus, in this brilliant moment, looks at him and says, okay, yeah, that's well and good, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, being sort of the bold one among the group, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's like, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited king. And you are the very son of God. Jesus then looks at Peter and says, well done. Gives him this blessing. And then right afterwards, Matthew says this, 1621. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders. They had to suffer from the elders and the chief priests and the legal experts and that he had to be killed and then raised on the third day. See, for Jesus to be the sovereign and saving son of God. For Jesus to be the one who fulfills Yahweh's promises, who defeats his enemies, who rescues his people, who restores God's kingdom on earth. For Jesus to be who he is and to do what he came to do, Jesus must suffer and die and then be raised from the dead. Now, can you imagine for a second being Peter and the other disciples and hearing Jesus say that. Oh, you're the, you're the long-awaited king. You're the one who's come to rescue us and deliver us. You're the one who's come to reestablish the throne of David. You're the one who we're putting all of our hopes in. And what you're telling us is that you're gonna suffer and you're gonna die? 
Like it doesn't sit well with them. That's why Peter decides to rebuke Jesus at that point. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You know, you go from blessed are you, Peter, to get behind me, Satan. It's a really bad day for Peter at this point. You know, it starts and he doesn't end well. He should have just walked out at that point. They had to come to understand something different. Everybody was expecting something different. When they're thinking about good news, this is not what they had in mind. How do you rescue and reign by dying? How do you do that? How is that going to work? See, for many at the time of Jesus, they expected the Messiah to come. What they expected the Messiah to do was to defeat Rome, to defeat Caesar, and then to secure independence for Israel and to restore Israel to glory, to restore Israel to the way that it was in the time of David. But we see in Jesus is that God's plan is not simply to defeat Israel's enemies, but to defeat all of humanity's enemies. That he's come to defeat not just Rome and that expectation, but he's come to defeat sin and Satan and evil and death itself. That God's plan is not simply for Jesus to rule over Israel, but for Jesus to rule over the entire world. And that God's plan is not simply for Jesus' rule to be temporary, but for Jesus' rule to be forever, to be eternal. And in order to do that, in order to defeat sin and Satan and evil and death, in order to reign over the entire world, in order to reign forever, Jesus must actually suffer all that we suffer as humanity. He must take it all upon himself and he must die in order to defeat death and that defeat, that victory comes in his resurrection. See, Jesus actually saves and reigns through his death and through his resurrection. That Jesus, the son of God, God himself has come near come and become fully human in order to rescue us, in order to restore all of creation. And he does so in the most unexpected way by taking all of the consequence of our rebellion upon himself, burying it in the grave, and then raising again in victory and in power so that death no longer wins. That this is who Jesus is. This is what he's come to do. And this is how he did it. And he turned the world upside down. Sorry, Alexander Hamilton. It was Jesus that turned the world upside down. So the question is, how do we respond to that? What's the invitation for us? If this is who Jesus is, if this is what Jesus came to do, and this is how Jesus did it, then what does that mean for us. Well, the very first words in Jesus's mouth, we see that invitation. Going back to Matthew 4, it said, from that time on, Jesus began to announce this, change, change your hearts and lives, repent, for here comes the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God has come near. And then as Jesus walked along the Sea of Galilee, he saw a couple of brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, and he's they were throwing their fishing nets into the sea because they were fishermen. They weren't just throwing the nets into the sea for no reason. And said, come, 
follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. And then right away, they left their nets and they followed him. And then continuing on, he saw another set of brothers, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. And they were in their boat with Zebedee, their father, repairing their nets. And Jesus called them, said, come, follow me. And immediately they left their boat and their dad just there with the nets and followed him. This is what Jesus did. See, Jesus invites us into God's kingdom. He invites us to become God's people, living in God's place, under God's power, and in his presence through repentance and discipleship. Through repentance and discipleship. The word repent means to turn from something and to turn towards something else. In many ways, it's to to transfer allegiance from one kingdom, from one ruler, from one way of life to another. It's to name our rebellion, to confess our sin, to renounce our allegiance to the things that stand in opposition to God and his kingdom, to ask for pardon and to submit to the king's way of life to change our hearts and lives. So the invitation of Jesus is constantly toward us to repent. When we gather together in worship, the question that we're always asking is, what is Jesus calling us away from? What is Jesus calling us away from? Because that very thing that he's calling us away from is actually destructive to us and to others in the world. What is he calling us away from? What is he revealing by his spirit to be untrue, to be ungodly, to be destructive? How is he calling us away from those things and to himself, to repent? And the second thing Jesus says is come follow me, to come and be his disciples, to be his students. Dallas Willard, gave maybe probably the best definition of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He said, if I am Jesus's disciple, it means that I am with him to learn from him how to be like him. To turn away from this and to turn to Jesus in order to be with him, to learn from him how to live like him. This is the invitation that Jesus has to come into God's kingdom, to be God's people, to live under God's power, his rule, his authority, and in his presence. So I love the fact here that Jesus says, come follow me. Come be with me. That through Jesus God is inviting us into his very presence, into relationship, that in relationship with him, we might learn how to live as citizens in God's kingdom. This is the beautiful invitation that Jesus extends to us, that we get to actually be with the king in order to learn how to become kingdom people.
We get to be with the king himself in order to learn how to become kingdom people. So what is Jesus calling you to? Not only is what is he calling you away from, what is he calling us away from, but what is he calling us to? What is he teaching us now? What is he showing us to be right and good and true and beautiful and godly? What is he revealing to us and saying, you once lived this way, now I'm teaching you to live in a new way because the kingdom has come near. In just a few moments, we're gonna come to the table where we discover every single time we gather together as God's people that this invitation is an open invitation to us always. That Jesus is always saying to us, repent and follow me. Confess your sins and learn from me. In just a few moments, Pastor Evan is gonna come up and lead us to the table. And when we come to the table, we start with a prayer of confession. We start every week with repentance of turning away from whatever we turn toward during the week and turning back to Christ. Responding to Jesus' invitation to repent. And at the table, we receive communion, which in many ways, it's history a communion is something that the church has always called a sacrament, which comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which is a pledge of allegiance. It's a way of turning from something through repentance and turning toward Jesus and saying to him once again, I pledge my allegiance to you and to you alone. And I've come to learn to be with you, to learn from you how to live like you. So would you teach me? Would you show yourself to me again? Would you teach me how to live in your ways? And tonight, as Pastor Evan comes and the worship team comes, this might be the first time that you've ever done that. For me, that first time was at Ken's table, March 28th, 1995, 25 years ago, of repenting, turning from something and turning to the person of Jesus and learning to follow him. Maybe the first time. But really what Luke reveals to us is this is the daily invitation for us to pick up our cross and to follow him, to repent, to follow Jesus. Let's come and do that together at the table. Pastor Evan.